May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Last Saturday, Anne Gale sent me a text and said the movie Jesus Revolution was drawing a lot of attention. She then asked if I wanted to see it. I hadn't even heard about it and didn't have time to check out the reviews, but I'm always game to go to the movies. I couldn't have been more surprised. Jesus' revolution is about my people, my generation, the Jesus freaks of beads and braids and beards and tie-dyed clothes. It was my life in the late 60s and early 70s. It was a story that has taken 50 years to be told. And I am a living, breathing witness to a spiritual awakening that really happened. It was also a reminder that how we tell the story changes with time. Jesus' revolution is 50 years in the making and it is just dripping with cliché. The age of Aquarius has not aged well. (laughs) But the story itself speaks of a movement that was authentic in the moment and life-changing for many. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and ask you, If any of you are willing to confess being part of this movement, anyone? Raise your hands. You have to raise both of them. This is the praise mode. I want to see those hands up. I can't say the A word, but I know you. So I didn't wear tie-dyed clothes or beads or ever go to the river to be baptized because I was a cradle-born, faithful, baptized, and confirmed Episcopalian, a mom, a teacher, and no one would ever call me a hippie. But I did experience a transformation that centered on the gospel story of Jesus The good news was indeed good news on the cusp of a social revolution of that time. Godspell. Think about all that happened in that moment. I spent one summer living in a community household at the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer in Houston the charismatic church, the choir, 200, 50 in the chancel, and 150 out in the nave, scattered, all rehearsed, all knowing, amazing. Sometimes the congregation swelled to close to 2,000. There was no room. And I experienced a call. 
1974, I went to seminary. I was only the third woman to attend the Seminary of the Southwest. Women's ordination was not yet a reality, but I knew this is where I belonged. It was my first glimpse of paradise. Immersed in an academic environment, our class, the first of the Jesus people at the Seminary of the Southwest, we challenged our professors and we brought laughter and joy to the seminary. God's frozen chosen were thawing out a little bit. The 1979 prayer book was on the horizon. A new hymnal was being constructed, and the old monastic traditions were becoming new again. We shared a vision of paradise in those three years of seminary, and as the film Jesus Revolution reminds us, we felt the Spirit of God making all things new all the time. The movie is focused on the Southern California Calvary Chapel, but the movement was across the globe, sowing seeds of revival everywhere. But what we also know is that we humans while we can't abide too much chaos and disorder, particularly in the Episcopal Church, so eventually the scribes and Pharisees return, they get control, the baby boomers settle down, and this movement became rooted. At its very best, we were given a glimpse of paradise and continued to be renewed in holy moments of grace. At its worst, it turned inward and toxic, not unlike the church of the first few centuries. But still, I believe paradise is our constant and eternal reality. And I know, and I've said this to you before, I look around, political and social unrest, global chaos and war, climate change and economic strife, it hardly seems to be paradise. And yet, we still have those moments, those glimpses of glory. Suddenly, there is that unexpected breaking forth of uncommon beauty, a desert morning sky, music that fills our hearts, a touch, a kiss, a child. We shiver at the sight and sound and feel of it. We cry out, we leap for joy, we see with new eyes, we hear in a new way, and we are forever changed. That was a time of change. This earthly realm is a garden of delight, an elusive reality that often lies beyond our grasp, the promise of Eden, paradise, a home we long for, a place we seek, a promise we hope to receive. This is the promise given to us by Jesus, restoration and an offering that opens the gates of paradise to all humanity, everywhere. This is the Jesus revolution. It is the promise that John delivers in his unique gospel, a work that begins with the prologue, the great summary statement of our salvation. In his first chapter, John offers these titles, Jesus is the Word, the Life, the Light, the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel, 
and grace and truth. Last week, we found ourselves in the dark of night with Nicodemus coming to Jesus with questions. The thrust and parry of that encounter brings the privileged, respectable, and educated Pharisee into a dialogue with Jesus. Nicodemus does not come off well, as evidenced in his question, how can these things be? And the response of Jesus, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Then comes that most quoted passage of scripture, John 3.16, and as many of us have experienced, when John 3.16 is extracted as a standalone verse, it is weaponized, but there's more to it. We can't forget that this encounter with Nicodemus is in the dark, and that is the point. The word is light and life. We are nourished in the light. As the hymn says, in him there is no darkness at all. The night and the day are both alike. The Lamb is the light of the city of God. Shine in my heart, Lord Jesus. One of the few hippie hymns that made it into our hymnal. John exposes the conflicted nature of Nicodemus and his questions. For these are not questions of belief. John ends with this statement from Jesus, but those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. And this is the moment Nicodemus must decide. Is he going to be a person of the light or darkness? We won't find out until the end of John's Gospel. Today offers what is perhaps the most remarkable encounter in John's Gospel. It is an upside-down story, a through-the-looking-glass story, and also the longest discourse between Jesus and any other figure in all the Gospels. This unlikely pairing occurs as Jesus and his disciples are returning to Galilee from the Judean countryside. The route takes them through Samaria and opens with Jesus stopping by J Jacob's well near this city of Sychar. The Samaritans were northern Israelites whose religious practices centered on the five books of Moses. They lived at odds with the Jews who dominated the Jerusalem temple. They looked for a Messiah who would be the return of Moses as promised in Deuteronomy. Their Messiah would vindicate the oppressed and inaugurate a season of refreshment. He would embody the power of God's name, the great I Am. John tells us it is about noon when Jesus arrives at the well and sits to rest. The disciples leave him to look for food. Now, you need to know this. No respectable woman would be getting water at noon. The women 
went to the well early in the morning. So this woman who is there is clearly not respectable. And to make matters worse, she is also a Samaritan. What is most important is that she, unlike Nicodemus, she asks astute questions and makes comments that reveal deeper layers of meaning shared between Jews and Samaritans. Her theological sparring with Jesus is the longest in the New Testament, and the dance between the two is unparalleled in the Gospels. Because of enmity between their peoples, Jews usually avoided even traveling through Samaritan territory. Yet Jesus, a Jew and a man, requests a drink of water from this stranger, a Samaritan and a woman. It's outrageous. She challenges his unusual request and her interrogation opens an extended conversation about ordinary water and the living water of eternal life. The paradise image of the well of living water is first mentioned in the Song of Songs, and Jesus tells her he has living water to offer. She notes that he doesn't even have a bucket. He replies, those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The promise to all of us, we become a spring of living water gushing up to eternal life, all of us. She says, she would be glad to have some of his water, but notes that the Samaritans and the Jews have different perspectives, different holy places, different alliances. She challenges his authority. Where is his allegiance? With the Jews in the temple? He says that he embraces all who worship God in spirit and truth. She says, The Samaritans awaited a Messiah who would proclaim all things to us. Jesus replies, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Their common allegiance with Moses breaks open this conversation and this living water pours forth as from a rock and washes over the barriers and impediments that we use to divide, deny, and conquer. John offers this signal when Jesus says, I am he, and is followed with seven more in the gospel. I am the bread, I am the light, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, I am the vine. These I am statements about abundant life identify Jesus with the return of Moses and with earthly paradise. Jesus' I am left the Samaritan woman wondering if this man was indeed the Messiah. The disciples return, and the woman whose whole life has been laid out before her leaves her water jar behind and goes back to the city. She says, come and see. 
The disciples return and no doubt were anxious to move on quickly from this place, but soon will find themselves as guests in this Samaritan city. Jesus has the last word. This is the Jesus Revolution. 2,000 years ago and today, and I am a living witness that it is true. 50 years ago, I offered my heart to the man from Galilee, and I have never looked back. Time collapses in paradise, and only a glimpse is necessary to see the light. Amen.